I have just one thing to say to you. Why don't you folks get some enthusiasm? <laughs> My name is Mildred, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. I'd like to thank Dick and Peggy for inviting me to come here. I'm grateful to be here to celebrate with you your 20th anniversary. Congratulations, and may you have many more. They talk about the ripple effect, and I was thinking this evening as I sat in my room, I wonder if one could see what the ripple effect of the Cornhusker Roundup is. I think it would be truly astonishing the good that has rippled out from these rooms and from this particular conference and from the people who come here, because a conference is really just as good, not as the speakers, but as the people who come, and then go home and take the message back. I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me. And, you know, it's great to come here. It's a long way from Toronto, Ontario, and yet I see a lot of familiar faces and a lot of people that are really very dear to me, to whom I owe a debt of gratitude in my sobriety, like Dick and Peggy and Clancy and Mary Pearl and Vince and some of the other speakers I met for the first time. Thank you, Joe, for your beautiful talk last night. It settled me right down and gave me the courage to come up here to share my experience, strength, and hope with you tonight. I knew when I got off the plane that this was going to be a fabulous weekend. There was nobody there to greet me. <laughs> Seemingly. So I thought, well, they're probably down at the, the baggage uh, rack. So I went downstairs, and as I came downstairs, there was a page for Mildred Sang. And as I walked over to that telephone, a young girl approached me. And she said, oh, I saw you get off the plane. But she said, I let you pass by. I was looking for an older woman. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm here to tell you as I reflect on my life, that probably one of the greatest gifts that has been given to me is the gift of alcoholism. For sober less than 90 days, and maybe people sober many more days than 90 days who really want to throw up when they hear me say that. And maybe you're saying, well, I think she should be locked up. Let me assure you, I have been locked up many times. <laughs> I have been locked up 32 times that I know of in one mental institution, psychiatric institution, or insane asylum across your country and my own, sometimes because I wanted to be there and sometimes because other folks wanted me to be there, sometimes for five days and sometimes for five months. I would wake up in those places. Sometimes there would be no doorknob on my side of the door, and it was not a mistake, trust me. I would wake up tied to the bed, and trust me, that was not for fun and frolic. <laughs> they gave me all talks to start with. Lots of talk, lots of talk. We had one-on-one -on -one therapy, and we had group therapy, and then we had some more one-on-one -on -one therapy. I've had hundreds of hours of that stuff, and always left those institutions in as much trouble as I was when I went there. They tried shock treatments on me. Once they gave me 25, and once they gave me 13, and I can tell you they were no picnics, but I would sit there in line, the perspiration running down my face, thinking, thank God they didn't ask me if I drink alcohol. <laughs> shock treatments were infinitely preferable to giving up my booze. They diagnosed me. They said that I was schizophrenic. Well, you know, I could never understand that. Didn't everybody talk to the doorknob? Didn't everybody hear voices and hear music? They said that I was paranoid schizoid, that I was schizoid paranoid. They said that I was manic depressive manic, manic depressive depressed. One doctor said that I had a chronic disorder. Imagine that, me. Another one said that I had an organic personality disorder. So by the time a psychiatrist said they thought I was alcoholic, that was the good news. <laughs> by the time I got here, I was in a state that the book calls pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I had just about worn out my welcome on the planet. 
by all rights, I should have died like my maternal grandfather did in Effingham, Illinois, in a hotel room four o'clock in the morning in a pool of his own blood in 1901. He was not so fortunate as to live at a time when Alcoholics Anonymous was available to people with that disease. I had an uncle who was shot. I had an uncle who drowned. They were alcoholics, and they too did not have the benefit of this program. And then I came along, and <clears throat> I knew that Alcoholics Anonymous worked because I have a brother who's sober 46 years, and so he changed when he went to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't have any idea what that was about, but I knew that he had changed. My father said I used to take him from around the telephone post where he was wrapped in his car, and now he smells the flowers and he talks to the birds, and he said, I don't know what's happened to him, but this Alcoholics Anonymous is absolutely fantastic. I did not know that someday I was going to need to have heard those words. I never want to forget, because I think sometimes we come to the program and now since we don't see a whole lot of wet alcoholics anymore, at least I don't, and uh, you know, things get very cushy at some of our meetings, it's possible to forget what this disease is really about and where it can take us. A couple of years ago, I was reminded that I ought to be forever grateful. I had been invited to mute and they asked me to come two days early because they wanted me to do some extra work there. Now that didn't, didn't really pose a big problem except that I'm a high school teacher and I had a new principal. And this man was known as a terror. He had a military background. He belonged to a fundamentalist church, but not only was he a member of the fundamentalist church, he was also a preacher there. And I can tell you, I was not relishing the thought of going into his office to tell him that I'm an alcoholic and I thought, while I'm at it, I might as well tell him I'm an ex-nun <laughs> and ask for this time off. So anyway, I went in. And, he, you know, the days off were no problem. He said, sure, you can have the days off. But he said, do you have that book that you folks read? I said, you mean the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? And he said, yes. He said, could you bring me a copy of that? I would like to read that. So I brought him a copy the next day, and he said, I will call you when I finish reading it. So two days later, <clears throat> he called over the intercom, and I went downstairs. And as I came to the door, this man, who was a very stern-looking individual, got up from behind his desk, took the big book, held it out to me and with some agitation said, do you know what's in this book? How would you answer that? And he said again with even more agitation, Mildred, he said, do you know what's in this book? And I felt a hot flush coming over me and it was not menopause because I thought, my God, I must have left my fourth step in there. <laughs> It turns out it was not my fourth step that agitated him, or excited him, I should say. It was the fact, as he told me, that he had an uncle who had died of alcoholism. And he big tears rolled down his cheeks, and he said, you know, I'm a preacher. And he said, my daddy is a preacher. And he said, we couldn't help him. He said he would come into the church to pray, and he would sit there, and he would wet his pants in the church. And he said he would do all kinds of things at family gatherings. And he said, as I read this, I saw what might have been for him had this book been placed in his hands and had he been able to understand. He said, you know, it's a fearful thing. He said, when you're a preacher and you see that you don't have the answers for somebody with the problems like my uncle had. And I went home with a new sense of gratitude that day, both that I had not put my fourth step in that big book, <laughs> and also that I had another reminder to be grateful. Well, I'm here to share my experience, strength, and hope with you. I was born on a farm in Saskatchewan, 
a girl obviously Roman Catholic, German, and the youngest of ten children. You may see nothing intimidating or nothing too bad about that, that list of characteristics that I've given you, but I hated every piece of that. I didn't want to be from a farm in Saskatchewan. I wanted to be from New York. I did not want to be German. I wanted to be Wasp. I didn't want to be Roman Catholic and so on. I didn't want to be the youngest of ten children. I felt alone and I felt alienated and I felt that I was different. When I was about three and a half, I began to realize that there was something wrong with the person that I loved most in the world. My sister Dora, I began to realize that there was something seriously wrong. She would crawl into bed with me at night and she would cry. And she would say, Mildred, why was I ever born? Why didn't I die in the cradle? And because I loved her so much, I would lie there with her and I would cry and I would say, Dora, why was I ever born? Why didn't I die in the cradle? You see, she was um, injured at birth, and in the, she's 80 now, so in the days when she was a child, they didn't know anything about degrees of intelligence. They didn't know about kinds of intelligence. They didn't know anything uh, that we know today, or it certainly didn't carry over into the school system because she was kept in grade three till she was 16, and you know how cruel kids are. And my family didn't know what to do with her. I know that now. So they overprotected her. That didn't make me an alcoholic. But I can tell you it set my values, it set my feelings, it set my perception of the way the world works. And you know, when I heard Clancy talk about perception, I began to understand how I was functioning. And that was a lot of years down the road. When I was five, I found alcohol. See, <clears throat> I had tried to fix things for my sister Dora because she used to say, nobody dances with me at the country dances. Well, thought I, that's simple. I'd go to my brothers and I'd say, you should dance with her. And then she'd come home on a Friday night and she'd say, see, nobody dances with me. And I became very fearful. And I started to feel that I was without power because nobody was listening to me. And I became full of rage, but I couldn't express that to anybody. I didn't know where to go to tell that. So <clears throat> at five, I found booze. And I knew that there was a God because the feeling that I got from that homebrew of my father's that I drank was so unbelievably fantastic that I chased that feeling to the gates of hell for 35 years. I mean, imagine, you could put this stuff into you and the bad world went away. I felt loving, I felt in harmony, I felt in tune, and everybody seemed to love me, and Dora's problems didn't seem so big, and my problems with that didn't seem so big. I can tell you, alcohol answered me a lot faster than God did. Because I can remember sitting out on the woodpile as a little child, looking up at the heavens, looking at the aurora borealis, look at, looking at stars, looking at the, at the moon and the, the vast expanse of the heavens, and wondering why this God that I had been taught was love and power was not responding to me. Well, you know, I, I have learned since that is not the way the world works. But the patterns were set for my life. And I can tell you, once I experienced what alcohol could do for me, I never thought sober again. I was always preoccupied with who had the booze, when were we going to drink it, was there going to be enough, how long was it going to last, and so on. You never heard from me, well, I think I've had enough. You never heard from me things like, I think we should chill this. Like, why would you <laughs> delay the process? You never heard things from me like this isn't the right kind. It was an absolute astonishment to me when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I heard people say, well, I only drank it. Well, bully for you. <laughs> if it had alcohol in it, I drank it, including vanilla, and I drank a lot of Chanel Number no. 5. Hi to you, too. <laughs> when I was in the convent... <clears throat> It seemed that every time that I drank vanilla, Mother Superior would say to the, 
the sisters that did the housekeeping, she'd say, Sister, you must have baked cakes today. You must have baked cakes today. And the house sister would say, No, I didn't bake any cake. It was just me sitting in the corner belching vanilla. <laughs> I just love today to go into a department store. And, you know, sometimes they have these people who want to spray you with perfume. And I, if I think it's the right person and I'm in the right mood, I'll say, Sure does smell good, almost as good as it used to taste when I used to drink it. <laughs> I've had varied reactions from that, I can tell you. <laughs> well, at 18, I decided to go to a convent. You know, if you don't like women, don't go to a convent. <laughs> and if you don't like to be regimented, don't go to a convent. I knew where, you see... People say, why did you go to a convent? Did your family want you to go? No, my family thought it was a rotten idea. The nuns that had taught me thought it was a rotten idea. <laughs> Our parish priest thought it was a rotten idea. But once I had conceived that maybe God would fix things if I did the best thing that I could think of, namely go to a convent, nobody was going to stop me. And I knew where the swinging convents were in the United States because I figured everything swings over here. <laughs> so I began a campaign to find the most swinging convent I could find. And they directed me to a place in Canada, in Hamilton, actually Waterdown, Ontario. And what I was to find was that I went, I wound up not in a swinging convent at all, in a place that was really almost semi-cloistered. And, and that's where I began my career in February of 1951. Some of you weren't even a glint in your father's eye at that time. I was drunk the night I went there to enter, and they took me anyway, which probably says as much about them as it does about me. I was to stay there for 15 years, drunk most of the time, which is where I acquired the title The Flying Nun. <laughs> I once was speaking at a conference somewhere in the States, and somebody came up to me and said, you're not Debbie Reynolds. And I said, no, I'm not. Why should I? Well, they said, they said the flying nun was coming. <laughs> How do you stay drunk in a convent? Well, I could, I could regale you the whole night with stories about how you do that. But I can tell you, it does take a little ingenuity. It gets a little complicated at times. I learned that a good storage place for booze was the bell tower of the church. And I also learned that the organ is up in the choir loft, and usually the door to the bell tower of the church was up in the, or in the choir loft. So I made sure that I always was the organist in every church where I was. I always had the choirs. I uh, trained all the junior servers and the senior servers, and that's about, don't you, Vince? In the old days when the Latin liturgy was still on, that was a big, big, big deal. I had lots of opportunity to be in the church, and I used to have parishioners who would deliver my booth supply to the bell tower, and when all else failed, I drank mass wine. And I used to try to hide that fact from the pastor in one of the parishes where I was, only to find out that that poor man was also drinking mass wine, trying to hide his consumption from me. <laughs> I tell you, that parish buzzed. <laughs> in 1960, but you see, here again is perception. People have the idea of alcoholics, you know, as being worthless, and not being productive, and so on. I'll tell you, alcohol allowed me to function. I was like my brother, as I remember him as a little girl. When he wasn't looking, he was shy, he was withdrawn, he had nothing to say. And I didn't particularly like him. When he, I smelled booze on him, I knew there were going to be good times. 
because he was happy-go-lucky, he talked a lot, he danced, he sang, he gave me money, everything was in good shape. And I was just the same. If there was booze in me, I functioned. I could go to university and get degrees. I could go and get degrees in organ and piano and all that kind of stuff. That was never a problem with me. What was the problem was what was going on inside. The terrible holes in the soul and the wind was always blowing through them. And it was always going to be something else that was going to fix it. Now I'm in real trouble because I'm in the convent for 15 years and the holes, the wind is still blowing through the holes in my soul. What do you do now? So at that point my father died. And I went home to the prairies for his funeral. I disgraced myself. I went to his funeral drunk, and when you're in all the black and white regalia, trust me, you are not low profile. <laughs> and by the time I got back to Ontario, the news had traveled, and Mother Superior asked to see me. Now, she could have asked me some really tough questions. Isn't it amazing that in 15 years, nobody ever talked to me about my drinking? Neither the people in the convent, nor any of the doctors, psychiatrists, Jesuits, bishops, whoever was out there, and called in to see if they could straighten me out or see if they could get my life back on track. Nobody ever asked me if I drank too much. So that day, she could have asked me, what about the booze that you store in the bell tower of the church? What about the booze that you store under your mattress? What about the pills you have stuffed all over? Because at some point, I became addicted to benzedrine and dexedrine and sleeping pills and all that stuff when all of you could always stuff a little of that into you. But she didn't ask me that. She didn't like hard questions. And I don't think she really wanted to know the answers. So she asked me a very innocuous question. Are you happy? <laughs> well, of course I'm not happy. Is anybody? Well, she said, I think some people are really settled down into life more than you are. Would you like to leave? I don't want you to leave because you're competent. But she said, you know, I think maybe you're young enough. You could make a life for yourself. Maybe you should leave. So we decided that that's what I would do, that we would write to Rome. And I got my dispensation. And on January the 10th, I remember well standing on the convent steps in 1966, and I was sure my problems were over. Isn't it amazing that you can study theology, you can study philosophy, you can study psychology and all kinds of things that are great for the frontal but don't do much for the heart. I really thought that you were the problem. I thought the convent was the problem. Mother Superior was the problem. The Pope was the problem. The Church was the problem. Everybody was the problem. I had no idea that I was the problem. And so I left the convent, and I don't have to tell you that I was in for an eye-opener, and I can only tell you that in the next 10 months, you could call that period the loss of innocence, because basically I was an innocent little girl when I went to the convent, and in that 10 months, I experienced every form of degradation that any woman alcoholic who's sitting in this audience can identify with, and by the time that 10-month period was over, I was no longer innocent. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know the booze was the problem. And so I signed myself into a, an in, it was then called an insane asylum. And yes, there were people there walking on all fours, and there were people there who know they were on the planet. I had heard that there was a psychiatrist there who was really good and who could help me. And so I went to him, and he said, you're not going to like what you see, but he signed me in. And the awful part of that was that in two weeks, I didn't want to leave. Two weeks later, my brother and sister found me there, and they insisted that I come back to the prairies. And finally, they pried me out of that place, and they took me to the university hospital. Now the university hospital was a new facility, and it had all the high-priced staff from the university. And the chief of psychiatry thought that I was an interesting case, so he wanted to deal with me personally. And so he became my doctor. Two interesting things, two life-changing events happened to me there. After I was there about two weeks, one afternoon, I was sitting down in the, in the, in the cafeteria with three other patients who, as I was later, were alcoholics. And they were talking about their drinking, and they were talking about the way they felt, and they were talking about the way they thought. 
And I identified for the first time in my life. And I said to myself, that's me, that's me. So I called Dr. McCarricker at home. He had given me his number at home and I said, I know what's wrong with me. Well, he said, that's novel. I said, I'm an alcoholic. I'd like to go to an AA meeting tonight. You would think, wouldn't you, that he would have been overjoyed. He said, oh, he said, I think that would interfere with your progress. <laughs> he said, you definitely cannot go to a meeting tonight. He said, we'll have to have a case conference tomorrow morning, and we'll decide then if we'll let you go to the meeting. The second thing that happened to me when I was there, I met the man who was to become my husband. Trust me, I was not too tightly wrapped. <laughs> Trust me, neither was he. <laughs> Anybody that would date me in the condition that I was at that time could not be too tightly wrapped. And I have to tell you, we weren't together on that day 20 minutes, and I knew that it was all wrong. I say we had a relationship. What we had was a parasitic entanglement. <laughs> he needed me, and I needed him. I was 18 years his junior, and of course he had a position on the university staff, and he was a psychiatrist on staff at the university hospital. I needed his prestige. And so I guess we made a pact with each other to go forward in this relationship. And I can tell you, the day came when I lived to regret the decision that I had made. And I'm sure he did too, because we were bad news for each other. <laughs> My friend Phil puts it this way. He says their neuroses were complementary. The rocks in his head fit the holes in hers. <laughs> And that's about the way it was. I did go to Alcoholics Anonymous when I got out of the institution. I went for five and a half years, and I was in Prince Albert. You know, I believe that the unconditional love of God is just something else, because I think every experience that we have before we come to AA and before we are surrendered to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is an experience that we need. I needed these five and a half years. See, I came into AA. I've always been looking for a quick fix. A guru, a book, somebody who was going to fix my life for me because I sure didn't know how to fix it. And so when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I liked it for three weeks. And then I found out that nothing had changed. And that's what I needed to know. I needed to know when I came here in 1973 that coming to Alcoholics Anonymous by itself doesn't mean much. You know, and that's not blasphemy. I was here for five and a half years. I was in Prince Albert. Cease was my sponsor. I went to meetings. Uh, I had a sponsor. They even let me go out to the women's jail. I suspect I carried the disease rather than the message. But I still went, and you see, because after three weeks when I didn't feel better, I medicated myself. And I sat in meetings of AA five years stoned, and I can tell you, if there's anybody out there, let my experience be, become your experience. It doesn't work that way. It kind of interferes with what you hear about the program. <laughs> it just slants it a touch. <laughs> and I found out that I couldn't do it that way. And after five and a half years, I just left. I, not because you drove me away. I left because I couldn't stand being with decent, honest people. One more time playing the hypocrite. One more time playing my sick games. And I went out and I drank again. And of course, by this time, I was having DTs. I was having convulsions. And they're no fun. But you know what? Knowing that you're alcoholic doesn't stop you from drinking. And despite the fact of having DTs and convulsions, and I can tell you, I fear them as much as I can fear anything, didn't keep me sober. When the compulsion to drink hit me, that strange mental blank spot took over, the strange insanity that allowed me to walk again like the jaywalker that you spoke about this morning, Mary Pearl. 
that's mentioned in the big book, and I would be gone. And I drank for another year and a half. And you know, I remember the first night I started to drink again. I, I decided to make Christmas cake, and I pulled out the red wine and the white wine, and the dark rum and the white rum. I mean, doesn't everybody? And the brandy. And then I started to mix, and I started to taste, and I started to drink. And within a 24-hour period, I had had DTs again. I had broken my foot. Not bad for a first attempt at booze. I drank for another year and a half. And by this time, my husband was incapacitated, too. He gave up his job. We lost everything that we had. And by the time I came here, we were sitting on Skid Row. I didn't know that such places existed, and honest to goodness, I really never expected that I was going to live there. It was about 10 days before I got sober. I don't even, I can't even tell you exactly how this happened, but I went on a trip. We had no money, so I must have gone with somebody. I went out to Prince Albert, I went to Rosetown, I went to Saskatoon, I came back to Toronto, I went to Cincinnati, Cleveland, came back to Toronto, and woke up in a psych ward in London, Ontario. Not bad, I would say. And as I woke up, there, was, there were two men sitting at the foot of my bed, and they really were there. One, <laughs> one was a psychiatrist who had been, who was on staff there, and the other was a private detective who had been hired to find me. And I did not know that that was to be the beginning for me of an ending to the old life and the beginning of a new one. On Sunday morning when I woke up, I could finally, the nurse got me out of bed and took me to the washroom, and I saw myself. My eye was blackened. I had a rim of purple bruises around my face. I had teeth knocked out. My hair was a mess. I weighed about 85 pounds. And I said to her, I have become a woman of the streets, haven't I? And she said, yes, you have. And I went back to my room after breakfast, and I thought about what my options were. All doors had closed to me. And I don't say that with self-pity. They should have closed to me. The kind of behavior that I was, gu I, that I was guilty of, they should keep. My friends walked away. Family said, we don't want anything to do with you. We won't see you on the street. Come home. You can't drink. That was totally unacceptable to me. So that's where I had come. And as I sat in the room, I determined my course of action. <clears throat> I was going to sign myself out, and I was going to go home and take my own life. God had other ideas that day. It seems to me that we know very little about what's going on. And I don't believe that God gives the gift to some and not to others. I think the gift of sobriety is given to each one. It would be a fearsome prospect, would it not, if God said to those of us in this room, you may be sober, and to the other people out there who will never get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're going to die in a ditch. Frankly, I don't believe in that kind of God. See, I've come to understand that if you give me a gift, I have to accept that gift. And I may then take it and throw it in the garbage, or I may open it up and appreciate it and use that gift. And I think it's the same with the gift of sobriety. I think it's offered, and it was offered to me that morning. And what I did not know was that I was ready to accept it. You know, I don't know how many chips it takes in the pool of misery to bring about surrender, but obviously... I had put in enough chips of pain, and that morning when the gift, I had a, a spiritual experience. And I remember saying, whoever you are, whatever you are, I, I'll be sober. I'll cooperate. I didn't even really understand what this was all about, but I knew that something had happened to me, and I had a feeling that I didn't need to drink again. But I said, I don't know how to live. That's what I meant before when I said, I think all the experiences we have before we get sober are crucial to the way we accept. You know, I had played out my reservations. 
I had played out my self-will and it didn't work. And when I came to this point, I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to live. See, in 1966, I thought all I had to do was put the cork on the bottle and somehow or other it was all going to be fixed. And if you know it doesn't work that way, because the book says that alcohol is but the symptom and the real work begins when you put the cork on the bottle. And you see, I was not one of those who put the cork on the bottle and just felt terrific. Oh, it's so great to be sober. It was as if the whole mess of my life was dumped on my doorstep. And I knew that I didn't know how to live. You see, I think when I stopped drinking, when I started drinking at five, I stopped growing. When my classmates and cousins and whatever else, as they grew up, they faced life and did whatever they had to do to deal with life. I hid in a bottle. I took the easy, soft way. And you know, you don't develop muscles that way. And you don't develop spiritual principles that way. And you don't develop good, solid ways of handling life. And so when I sobered up, I had none of that. And so I said, you got to send somebody to me. I don't know how to do this thing called sobriety. And I swear to you, there was a rap on the door. And a man stood there. And he said, I saw you at breakfast. He said, are you an alcoholic? Now let's not get good too fast. I said, yes, do you want to make something of it? <laughs> he said, no. He said, I just thought you looked in bad shape and I thought I might offer you some help. I said, what had you in mind? He said, well, would you like to forget AA? I said, I was there five and a half years and they didn't do a thing for me. That isn't what AA was founded for, right? It's here to help those who want it. It's here to help those who put some effort into it. It's here to, for those who want to interact with this wonderful fellowship and with the program and get into service. You know, again, I wanted AA to be some kind of magic potion. So he said, well, he, I said, have you got anything else? And he said, well, would you like to go to Donwood? I said, what's that? And he said, it's a hospital for addicted people. And I kind of scanned through the places I had been and said, well, I guess I haven't been there. <laughs> so three days later, I went there. They accepted me. And this is a hospital. It, it, then there were no treatment centers in, and they fed me some good food, and they got me off the pills, and they got me off the booze. And uh, they taught me about nutrition and they taught me about relaxation, and they taught me about the disease, but they did not tell me that this was a spiritual program and that I was going to need a spiritual solution. However, they, it was just, I guess, what I needed at the time. I left there, and I started bumping into some people. I like to call it the three Ps, actually, because the first difficulty that I bumped into was poverty. I had never missed a meal in my life, and I can tell you the first year we were sober, I did miss a couple of meals, quite a few as a matter of fact. I got a little job making $2.20 an hour, and that didn't always put food on the table. And I'm grateful because I was one of those people, if I had a buck in my pocket, especially if I had a lot of bucks in my pocket, I didn't have to listen to you because my ego was rampant. Money is power, and don't you ever think that it isn't. And in the hands of somebody like me, it could be dangerous. I needed that poverty. I needed to learn who I was. Skid Row was good for me. And then I bumped into people. The first person was my psychiatrist at Donwood. I told him one day that I had been planning to take my life the night before. Do you know what he said to me? I thought he was going to say, oh, you poor little thing. Come, I'll t we'll talk, and we'll talk about your mommy and daddy. He said, listen, if you want to kill yourself, go right ahead, but stop your goddamn whining. <laughs> you crap at that. And then there was a woman in AA who came and tried to take me to meetings. And our interaction was anything but pleasant. And one day, she sailed into my room and she said to me, you are the most unpleasant, self-centered individual it has ever been my misfortune to meet. I was only sober a few months. You don't talk to me like that. I said to her, 
I said to her, I'm an ex-nun. You can't talk to me like that. <laughs> and she said, watch me. <laughs> and the strip she hadn't taken off previously, she proceeded to take off then. And then my second sponsor. My pr- I, I came back to A. I was six months sober. I walked into a meeting of AA not because I thought you had a good program or because I thought the fellowship was great or because you were going to help me. I walked in simply because I was so desperately lonely and the magic took hold because at that point there was something inside me that knew that I needed help and I walked in here and as I say, I don't remember much except that people said those amazing words to me, we sure hope we'll see you next week been a long time since anybody had said, we sure hope we'll see you next week. And so I kept coming back and the magic worked. And I was so happy when I was here. I thought it was just fantastic. But then I had to go home. And I'd wake up three o'clock in the morning and I'd look around where we were living and I'd think, am I always going to be this poor? And the fear would overtake me. And I hadn't dealt with any of that stuff from childhood, you see, because the rage and the fear and the powerlessness that I had taken on there was still roaming around inside me. And um, I went back to the meeting. My first sponsor had gotten drunk. And so I was sponsorless. And I don't know if any of you have felt this way. But I felt, well, I'm so different. I'm so unique. There's nobody out there really can sponsor me. Well, so I was sponsorless. And um, there were some fellows there that I used to talk to. And uh, they said, you have to do the steps or you, you'll never get to feeling better. And smart me who had always felt that she knew all about God and knew all about theology and all this kind of stuff, I shut my mouth and I said, what do you want me to do? And John and Leon took me through the steps. I don't remember much of it. I don't know that I understood anything of what I was doing. But you know what? It, there's no place it says that we have to understand. As a matter of fact, I think our frontal lobes keep us from understanding. Because it's a heart thing. It's not a head thing. If I could understand what the steps were about, I'd be as great as God. I think it's a gift that was given to us. And nobody's asking us to understand. They're just asking us to do what is required. And that's what I did. And you know what? I kept my fourth step. And I don't know, about two years ago, I was going through something in a file. And I picked my fourth step out of there. And I read it. And you know what? It's a pretty good assessment of who I am and what my problems have been. And out of that fourth step, I began to see who was the problem. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, there was a man who was still alive. His name was Moose. And he used to say, it is not important what you think of me. It is very important what I think of you. And I followed him one day and I said, what do you mean by that? He said, if somebody else likes you, or he said they don't like you, it doesn't really affect anything. But he said, if you don't like other people, you've got poison in here, and it's what you've got inside you that's going to kill you. I had never known that. And so the messages started coming. There was a man, Ted Lynch, who used to come to our meetings, and he was sober about 30 years at that time. And he used to say, do the do things. You know, when I came here, I couldn't read. I couldn't put two thoughts together, but I could hear what he said. Do the do things. He said, I don't care how you feel. Do what you have to do. Do what you're obligated to. And so I sailed into doing the steps. I got busy in AA, and I started to change. And by the time I had my one-year medallion, I was sailing along. Now, the last school that I had taught in, the principal had told me one morning to get my things and be gone in 10 minutes and never to darken the doors again. I have no idea what I did, and I was too scared to ask. And I thought I would never teach again, and I loved to teach. And the day after my one-year medallion, the little voice inside me said, go look in the paper, see if there are any teaching jobs, 
and I went and I saw four or five advertised. I didn't look at anything other than it was a teaching job. I went and applied and within three days I had a job. And I'll tell you, when you've been making $2.20 an hour and you are going to be making 20 grand a year, whatever it was at that time, it was a princely sum. And I simply floated around AA for weeks, just so thrilled that I was going back to teach and I was going to have money. And then the reality hit, and I got into back into the school, and I thought I was going to march in there as Mrs. A.A. I mean, I had done the steps, don't you know, and I knew all about how to stay sober, and I was going to teach those poor slobs how to live. I can tell you, <clears throat> I had done the steps, best of my ability. I can tell you that I figured by this time I was about six years old emotionally. I was, as it turned out, God is, you know, has some strange twists in store for us. Uh, as it turned out, I had the privilege for 20 years to teach teenagers with learning disabilities and emotional problems, something that nobody did for my sister, and I felt really privileged. However, the most disturbed of the people in that room was standing at the front of the room. <laughs> I can tell you that over the 24 years that I've been sober, there have been a lot of good people who have passed my way, who have taken me aside and had compassion on my goofiness, and they've taught me things about how to get along with people, about how to deal with things, and there, some of them have been people in AA, and some have been people who are in AA. And so, I'm sober seven years now. And I have paid off my debts, I've paid off my husband's debts, and I've paid off the debts we accumulated mutually. Wouldn't you have loved to have me, fellas? And um, we had separated when we were sober about a year and a half. I said to my husband one day, do you still blame me for everything that happened? And he looked at me and he said, about 95%. And I had been in AA long enough at that point and I say this not in criticism of him, but I had been around here long enough to know that while I had to take full responsibility for my stuff, so did he. And I couldn't drag his bag of stuff anymore. And so I left. And my sponsor, of course, as all sponsors do say, you know, stay away from the men for a year. Did I? You got it. Three weeks later, I've got a little conflagration going. I picked him because he was going to be my ticket to the good life. Just a teensy little problem. He couldn't stay sober. And two and a half years later, I mean, I knew how to stay sober, and by God, I'm going to teach you. And two and a half years later, I find myself, he, I've got his ears in my hands. <laughs> He's lying on the bed saying, get me some beer. I've got the advantage. I'm standing. I'm sober, and I've got his ears in my hands. And I said, you pray. Because I thought it... <laughs> I thought if he would just pray, he'd get sober, and then we could go on with our life the way I had determined. He said, I don't want to pray, I want beer. <laughs> and at that point... I pounded his head on the bed and I said, you pray, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and then I took myself off to Al-Anon. <sighs> I was about four years sober at that time, or maybe I should say four years into not drinking. I don't know how sober I was. My my group members used to wonder when I was going to get drunk, you know. They, they'd watch, and hell, I didn't have time to get drunk. I was too busy managing his life. Anyway, we, we said goodbye to one another, and I'm very busy now in AA, and I'm sponsoring, and I'm sponsored, and I'm speaking at conferences, and I'm doing all the stuff you're supposed to do, going to lots of meetings and so on. And as I said, seven years go by, I've paid off all the debts, 
And my sponsor, by now I've got a good, tough sponsor. And he said to me, it's time to do the steps again. And I'll just say this about that process. That second time through the steps was an amazing process because he dug the anger out of me. You know, that little girl in the bedroom, she had buried a lot of rage and it had never come out. You know, my father was a stern man. He was not much given to backtalk. So if you, get, you felt anything, you just swallowed it. Mother Superior wasn't too liberal-minded either. And I had never learned to say how I really felt. And so my sponsor worked with me, and that's what I remember from that second doing of the steps. Some of the rage started to come out. And I'm a great believer. I've seen it happen so often that I don't doubt the process anymore that when I make an effort to cooperate with the grace of God by whatever it is I do to change in here, the outside just automatically changes. And with that second doing of the steps, it was as if I had the wind on my back and I could do no wrong, and I started to make money. And I became very rich. And that is not a proof that the program works. That's just a proof that I was at the right place at the right time. And uh, it was another aspect of my growth because I had never done that. You know, as I said, I went to the convent at 18 and, you know, in my drunkenness certainly didn't have an experience of that kind. And I began buying houses and I had to deal with tenants and it was another growing up experience. If you had asked me at that time what it was about, I probably would have said, if I trusted you enough, it's sort of my reward for being a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you ever get that thought, watch out. Because you're in for some interesting times. Just like I was. The real estate market went bust and a lot of other things happened. And anyway, it isn't about the money. You know, when I came in here and you showed me the steps and the traditions, I don't need that stuff. I need money. You know, when I came in here, I thought there wasn't a thing wrong with me that a million dollars wouldn't solve. And you know, when I, it was pointed out to me in the big book, spiritual principles would solve all my problems. What do you mean, spiritual principles? It has nothing to do with that, thought I. And as it turns out, I believe that today, that those are the only things that will solve my problems. And so I was in, in Louisiana about this time, and I stuck my nose into one conversation too much. And these people were talking about big book studies and about reading the big book and studying the big book and going back and doing the steps. And I thought to myself, I've done that. And you know, as Mary Pearl quoted this morning, if you want to stay stuck and you want to stay ignorant, assume that you know it all. And I went back to Toronto, but the message had been injected. I couldn't get rid of it. Every place I went, I heard this voice saying, you should do the steps again. You should read the book. And uh, finally I went to my sponsor and I said, would you take me through the steps again? Because you see, I can help you through the steps, but I can't help myself through the steps because if I do, I have a fool for a mentor. Everything that I know gets filtered through my already faulty perception system. And he said I would be happy to, and we went through the steps, and it worked one more time. I changed. I changed in ways that I didn't know I could change. And it was at this time that the most amazing process began, which I'd like to, to share with you. Um, my nieces came to visit me and they brought me a picture of my retarded sister standing at her 75th birthday cake. And of course, because she's never been married, never had children, she was standing there alone. Something snapped in me and I began to cry. I never used to cry. I prided myself. I don't cry at movies. I don't cry over that silly stuff. You know, I wanted to be a man. I wanted to be tough like I thought it was proper for a man to be. And I couldn't go back anymore, and I cried, and I cried for about two weeks. And it was as if something released in me. 
And then the whole thing started to unravel. I remember Chuck Chamberlain one time when I was in Prince Albert saying to me, do you know, Miss Mildred, he said, you already are everything that you can be, and you already know everything that you can know. <laughs> when your head is full of pills, what does that mean? He said, one day you will come to understand that you need to have unraveled from around you all the things that you think are so important and you think that make life work. And he said, when that day of unraveling comes, you'll think of me. And I began to think of him because the day of unraveling came and I knew that there was a relationship in my life that was not appropriate. It was a 15-year relationship between two people who didn't know how to express the truth about their feelings and the relationship had died. And on the outside, we looked good. On the inside, there were no connections any longer. And I knew I had to give it up. And so one day, I went over and uh, we said goodbye. And a part of me died inside. And about a year later, I knew that I had to give up my job because I was hanging on to it. You know when you say the third step prayer and you say, relieve me of the bondage of self? Well, that was my bondage of self. It was the man, it was the job, it was what gave me my identity. And I heard the voice say, resign, and the next day I did. And the day I closed the school door four years ago, I thought I was going to die because I felt that I had nothing left in life. You see, I had gone to the job to avoid how I felt. I had gone to the man to avoid how I felt. And I think the day comes when our feet have to be put to the fire and you find out what's real and what's dross. And that's the process that began for me at that time. I thought, who am I? I don't have kids. I don't have a man in my life. By the way, I still am taking resumes. <laughs> but, but <laughs> and trust me, I get one once in a while. Um, and I began to realize something. That when I was a child in that bedroom, I had put up the walls very efficiently. I put them up thick and I put them up high because I was convinced that nobody saw the world the way I did, that nobody cared about me, nobody cared about Dora, and the safest way to live was to just hide. Hide who you are and don't reach out because people don't reach back. You know what, walls, it's too late. And I had lived within those walls. I'm 64 years old now. I had lived within those walls for 60 years. And I thought to myself one day, Mildred, if you were to die now, would anybody come to your funeral? Yes, they probably would. Would anybody cry at your funeral? Uh-uh. Because you haven't got any connections to anybody. You've played this whole thing nice and close to your chest. And everybody knows a lot about the outside of you, but nobody knows the inside. So how do you change that? Ah, it was uncomfortable. But I worked at it. I went to people and said, I'd like to be your friend. Is that possible? And I worked at letting people know who I really am, what I really feel like. People used to say to me, you intimidate me. And I used to take that as kind of a compliment. I was sick enough. <laughs> I know now why I intimidated them, because when they'd come near me, they'd hit the wall, and they didn't know what was going on. I learned to cry, and I learned to cry in front of people, and I learned to feel my emotions. It wasn't all bliss, I can tell you, because one day, I woke up in the morning and I said, it's too tough, I don't think I want to be here when this day is finished. I didn't think it wasn't about drinking, it was about getting off the planet. And about six o'clock that night, I put my hand out of the bed. And you know, I cannot account for this. There was a scribbler on the floor, a notebook, and I picked it up and I opened it. And there in my handwriting, one more time, I saw, I had written at an earlier date, Mildred, can you make the pain go away? And I had written, absolutely not. And I had written, can you take your life out of the toilet? And I had written, absolutely not. See, back in that bedroom, I had found out, 
or rather, I made the conclusion that I was nothing, that I was nobody, that it was all because I was a girl, nothing was going to work out for me. And th those are the things I had lived with running around in my head all my life. And there it was again. Can you change this? Can you fix what's inside? Can you put your life where you want it to be? Absolutely not. And one more time, I felt the presence of God as I have never felt it before. And joy flooded me, and I knew that I was up to the rest of the journey. And I got out of bed, and I got dressed, and I went to a meeting. And that's one thing that I have always done right, and that is I have stayed close to Alcoholics Anonymous. Through the good days and the bad days, through the lonely days and the angry days, I've gone to meetings. I've stayed close to my sponsees. I've stayed close to my mother. And one day at a time, it got me through. I had a few things to learn yet, because as I can see it now, I still thought I should be fixing my life. I don't know, it was such a strong message. And one night I went to a meeting, this was about, oh, about a year ago. And uh, there was a man talking, and he, he was talking about his anger, and how rich he had been, and you know, but he, come, he came to AA, and he just couldn't get rid of his rage. And he said, he said one, one morning, he had always done what his sponsor had asked him to do. Didn't believe in God, but he said, I got down on my knees every morning to ask for the gift of sobriety. Whoever's out there. And he said at night, he would say thank you. And this morning, he said, I had just had it. And he said, as I asked for the gift of sobriety, I also said, please help me. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to get rid of my rage. And he said, I went, got up and I went to work. And that night, he said, when I got on my knees to say thank you, he said, I realized that I hadn't been rageful all day. I don't know if anybody else in that room heard what that man said. I did. And the last piece in that puzzle was laid because I knew that I didn't know how to fix my life, and that surrender was really surrender, and that I had started this process with step one in which I had acknowledged that I was without power over the booze, and that I had acknowledged that I was without power over life, over my own growth, over other people, over everything, that I had acknowledged that I'm a guest here, you know, and that my problem had always been I played God. And I think that's really what the steps have done for me. They've taken me to step 12, which has, which says that as the result of doing these steps, I'm going to wake up spiritually. And then it started to make sense. You're not just a human being mucking around and if you get it all fixed on the outside, you're going to be okay. You're a spiritual being. You're here to evolve. And now what the book said made perfectly good sense. Isn't it true that for a spiritual being, spiritual principles would solve all my problems? And I thought, isn't this the truth? And isn't this what step two is saying? When we come to believe that there's a power greater than we are that's going to restore us to sanity, the sanity of not drinking, the sanity that is also order, and the order is always sequence. And as I looked at it, I saw the perfection of the grace of God. Not a thing, not a thing too late. And I can tell you that this journey has ended. That piece of it has come, I shouldn't say has ended, eh? <laughs> that this piece of it has come to fulfillment. Because I can look at those words now where it says, God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. And I can say, yes, God, I experienced that today. I'm no longer mixed up, confused, rattled, lonely, and depressed. And my sister Dora, what about her? About two years ago, I went home. And my sister is very shy, and she's, she's very retiring. And I kissed her goodbye, put my arms around her, and told her I loved her. And I was just going out the door when she followed me, and she said, and I went, and she said, I don't cry myself to sleep anymore. 
She said, I, I really feel happy these days. And she said, I hope you don't cry yourself to sleep anymore either. You know, my sister is not nearly as smart as I am intellectually. She hasn't read all the books that I've read. She hasn't gone to all the meetings. She hasn't figured out all the stuff that I thought I had figured out. But God in his infinite wisdom brought her to acceptance, just like he brought me to acceptance. And I'm so grateful for everything that has happened to me, because I do believe that the grace of God is perfect, and it can be trusted, and it is the unconditional love of the power greater than we are in action. And I'd like to close with a little story. It's about the two fish that were swimming under the, under the wharf in San Francisco. And the two fish had heard the people on the wharf talking about water. And they said, the people were saying, you know, how powerful water was, how beautiful water was, what you could do with water, that it quenched your thirst and all this. And one of the fish said to the other, isn't that fantastic? He, the other one said, yeah, I think we should go where there's some water. So the first fish said, good. He said, I hear they have water in the Sea of Japan. So these two fish swam across the water. They swam across the Pacific Ocean and they got to the Sea of Japan only to find out that they were in the water and always had been, and the water had always been in them. And when I heard that story, I couldn't help but apply it. And I thought, isn't that just the way it is? The power has always been in us, and we are always in the power. And that you may experience that in ever greater measure is my wish for you. And thank you for being such a lovely audience.